0: All right. Today we're going to finish up with the general prologue, and in the next session we'll be discussing the Miller's Tale. Uh, So let's get in about uh, halfway through the general prologue, and we'll start with The Wife of Bath. Uh, now, if you notice, these pilgrims are all named basically by their profession. Uh, there are a couple of them we get names, uh, uh, Hubert and Madame Eglintine, but uh, mostly they're just identified by their profession. Well, the, the wife is kind of a professional wife. So let's go through her portrait. A good wife was there, a Bessie Bath; that's She lived near ba- in the city of Bath. But she was some deal deaf, and that was scath. So the first thing we hear is she's a little little bit deaf. That's going to become significant when we read her, her story. Of cloth making, she had such an haunt, such a skill, she passed them of Ypres and of Gaunt. And that's an exaggeration, because nobody in England at this time was making cloth as good as the that they made in, in Ypres or in Gaunt. Uh, so again, we're probably getting the narrator... Uh, echoing back what the wife says about herself. In all the parish, wife, there was there none that to the offering before her should have gone. So, nobody gives as much in her parish to charity as she does. Uh, it says, and if there did, if somebody did, certain, so wroth was she that she was out of all a charity. So, if anybody does upstage her in charity she gets all mad about it Uh, so we go from something that's praising her to something that's showing a a kind of a character weakness Um, her kerchiefs her her head covers full fine were of ground I durst swear they weighed in ten pound that on a Sunday weren't upon her head so uh, she's she's a cloth maker so she has these big uh headdress uh ten pounds worth, so that's that's quite a headdress um, that her hosen were in of fine scarlet red, full straight ye tied and shoes full moist and new. So she's wearing the, the latest fashion, she's well dressed, bold was her face and fair and red of hue. She was a worthy woman all her life husbands at church door she had five without an other company in youth so she's been married five times and apparently has played around in addition to that when she was younger uh, so she really is a professional wife uh, now remember in, in the Middle Ages there is no divorce you don't get divorced from somebody if if uh, you've been married five times it means that you've five of your husbands have died and um, so that tells us something about her too. That she's probably a young, she was a young woman who married older men. Um, and by the way, it says that you know she works in the cloth making. Um, a widow could inherit inherit her husband's business, and that apparently is what has happened. She's inherited this this uh, cloth making business from one of her husbands. Um, And he says, and thrice had she been at Jerusalem. Okay, so she's gone on pilgrimage before, but all the way to Jerusalem. That's a long way to go from England in in the 1300s. She had passed many a strange or foreign stream. At Rome, she had been, and at Boulogne, in Gallus, at St. James, and at Cologne. So she's been she's well traveled. um the only two other two uh pilgrims who were this well traveled would be the knight and the shipman that so she could she knew much of wandering by the way. Now, that can be taken in a couple of ways. It could just be a literal statement that she had traveled a lot of places, but wandering by the way has a moral connotation, that maybe she is wandering off the straight and narrow path. Gap-toothed she was. Now, being gap-toothed was thought to be a sign that you were, you were amorous, you, uh, uh, which would fit with a woman who had five husbands and other company in youth. Upon an ambler, easily she sat. You wimpled well, and on her head, a hat as broad as is a buckler or a targe. So she's got this big hat that's as big as a shield. It's interesting that, you know, that's the comparison made. That's a very masculine image. Um, And a foot mantle about her hips, large. And on her feet, a pair of spurs, sharp so she's got a shield-like hat she's wearing spurs Um, this is a very formidable person and and, uh, in in some ways um, a a warrior here with a shield and spurs um, said in fellowship well could she laugh and carp or talk of remedies of love she knew perchance for she could of that art the older dance all right so she, she she likes to laugh, she likes to talk. she knows about love, but this sounds like a very different kind of love than you 've got from the squire, remember the knight 's son, who is very romantic love this is, This is not that this is, uh, seems a little bit more bawdy. so the wife is uh, one of the few women on the pilgrimage uh, we 've got the prioress and the nun. Uh, the nuns heart not really described at all, uh, and and the wife, uh, but the, the wife seems to have them all outnumbered. She's a very formidable uh, figure, uh, and we get some sense of her personality here, and we'll see it greatly developed in her tale. Now, these next two portraits of the the, the parson and the plowman, they're brothers, and they're again two of these idealized. Portraits where there doesn't seem to be any of the kind of sly undercutting that Chaucer does, and so in most of the the portraits, these seem to be genuine paragons. Um, now we had the the clergy described earlier, and now we're coming to the parson, and you might wonder, well, why is the pars- Why wasn't the parson in there with the with the other clergy? well you'll see from his description in, in ways he doesn't really belong with the other clergy uh, also he's of a much lower uh, uh, economic scale he's, he's a poor parson uh, all of the earlier church people w- seem to be very well off um, through good or bad means but he's a, a, a kind of a humble local priest because he's a learned man um, and it says, you know, he could in little things have susifons. That's line uh, 4092. Uh, four, I'm sorry, line 492. Um, so, he doesn't need a lot to be satisfied. He, he doesn't need all of the, the, the trappings that the, the, the monk or the prioress have about their table manners and Latin and hunting and all of that. He doesn't need that to be satisfied. Um, and it says, line uh, four ninety nine, that first he wrought, and afterward he taught. So, so he was a noble example. So he he walks the walk. He does the right thing, and then he talks about it. And there's not a, he's not sermonizing about things that he's not willing to do. Uh, out of the gospel, line five hundred. Out of the gospel, he. Uh, those words caught and this figure or metaphor he added, eke thereto that if gold rust what shall iron do? So I- gold is perishable certainly the iron of everyday life is and that shows you again the, the, what little stock he puts in worldly things this is the kind of the the ideal of what a, a clergyman is supposed to be it goes on, line 503. Uh, no wonder if uh, a lewd man to, uh, is a lewd man to rust. Uh, and shame it is if a priest take keep, a, and uh, a shitten shepherd, and a cleany sheep. So the parson is pointing out if the shepherds The the clergyman has shit all over him. How can you expect the sheep to be clean? Now, of course, this is an implicit indictment of those earlier clergymen that we saw, because this is, again, this is a man who really practices what he preaches. Um, It says, line 516, he was a shepherd, not a mercenary. Uh, and, And Chaucer sums it up, line 526, a better priest, I trow, there nowhere none is. Uh, He waited after, no pomp and reverence, the make him a a spiced conscience. But Christ's lore and his apostles twelve he taught, but first he followed it himself. So that's the essence of the the good clergyman, is that they practice what they preach. Now, the plowman is his brother. um, the plowman was often in iconography. Was the uh, I've told you talked about the three estates. The the knight was the symbol of the of the of that estate. The uh, the priest was the symbol of the the clergy, and the plowman was usually the symbol for the workers. Uh, and he is a, you know, he's a good man, a true swinker, a true worker. Um, look at line five thirty five. God loved he best with all his whole heart at all times, though him uh, gamed or smart, and then his neighbor right as himself. So he loves God with his whole heart and his neighbor as himself. That's, you know, biblical right out of the Bible. Um, again, he's another uh, paragon. Uh, he's living life the way that he should. Um his tithes paid he full, fair, and well, both of his uh, proper swink, his work, and his uh, uh, cattle, his property. Uh, in Tabard, he rode upon a mare. Okay, Tabard is the workman's smock. He's dressed in workers' clothes. And he's riding on a mare. And that also tells you something, that uh, a, a guy should be riding on a stallion. He doesn't care about that. He can ride on a mare he's not he's not prideful um, Yeah, those two are really idealized portraits but now we get to the Miller he's a little bit less on the ideal side uh, it starts around uh, five forty seven the Miller was a stout Carl for the nannes now for the nanais for the nonce is uh, just uh, an idiomatic expression it means literally for the occasion but in in modern English that would be something like the miller was a strong man by God um so a stout Carl a strong fellow full big he was of brawn an eke of bones so big muscles big bones uh, that proved well. For overall, there he came at wrestling. Would he always have the ram? So whenever there was a, a wrestling contest, he was always the winner. He got the prize, the ram. He was uh, he was short-shouldered, broad, a thick canar. There was no door that he nold would heave off har. So there was no door he couldn't pull off its hinges or break it at a running with his head. So he can just if he can't pull it off the hinges, he'll just run into it with his head and knock it down that way. So not an intellectual giant, I'm imagining. Um, his beard, as any sow or fox, was red, and thereto broad, as though it were a spade. Upon the copright of his nose he had a wart, and thereon stood a tuft of hairs, red as the bristles of a sow's ears his nostrils black were and wide. Um, So we get uh, this kind of very, almost too close close up of the, of the Miller with this little wart and red hairs going out of it. Uh, It's not an attractive person. Notice too, how much of this description is just physical. The, The Miller is almost defined by his physicality. Um, he said, a sword and buckler bar he by his side, his mouth as great was as a great furnace. He was a jangler, that is a chatterer, a storyteller, and a goliardess. Uh, and that was most of sin and harlotries. So we're getting a preview of what his tale is going to be like, that he talked most of sin and harlotries. Well could he steal in corn and toll in thrice, and yet he had a thumb of gold, Pardee a white coat and a blue hood where he a bagpipe well could he blow and sound and therewithal he brought us out of town now the, the bagpipes didn't have the uh, particularly Scottish connotation that they do today but the sound of it kind of fits with the miller This is he's not playing a flute he's not playing a guitar he's playing a bagpipe um, he's uh, kind of not a, which is not a lovely sounding instrument uh, when it says that you know, he had a thumb of gold, this is part of the the stereotypes about millers at the time. Uh, millers, farmers would bring their grain to the miller, and he would mill it. Uh, their wheat, they bring their wheat to the miller, and he would mill it into grain that they could then sell, and he would charge them for this. And he, notoriously, the millers would always overcharge them so that thumb of gold he has is the thumb that he's putting on the scales to tip it so that he gets more money for uh for milling the wheat um again chaucer just the narrator just presents that uh, he doesn't uh, he lets us fill in the gaps about it now the next portrait is the mansible and he is essentially the the, the business agent for a group of lawyers and uh Chaucer points out, line 575. Now, is not that of God a full fair grace that such a lewd, man, lewd man wit shall uh, shall pace the wisdom of a heap of learned men? So he said, here's this guy, this lewd, this common man, who he's able to run circles around all these lawyers. He's a he's a smart businessman. He puts one over on them. Um, again, the the narrator is praising that. We may see it a little bit differently. The Reeve, the next uh, uh, portrait, the Reeve was a slender, choleric man. Now, there's the four humors again. Choleric means he was angry, agitated. Um, he's uh, he's skinny, uh, he, you know, with his his legs uh, and were, oh, I'm sorry let's see full long were his legs and full lean you like a staff there was no calf you seen so his legs are just straight there's no calf muscle there it's just got a straight legs very skinny uh, now was a reeve was a man who would oversee an estate and he oversees it for his young lord uh, his lord was 20 years of age so he's the one who's managing the estate for him uh, and it mentions, uh, line 615, in youth, he had learned a good uh, mister. He was a well-good right, a carpenter. Um, so he, when he was a young man, he had been a carpenter, and now he's kind of uh, gone into the into this new job as a, as a Reeve, as an estate manager. Um, the, now Reeves and Millers are kind of natural enemies because a reeve is managing the state. He wants to get the most for his money. He wants to make sure nobody's cheating his lord and, you know, make, charging more than they should. And the millers are always trying to, to cheat and uh, charge more than they should. So uh, reeves and millers are, are like cats and dogs. Uh, they're, they're natural enemies. All right, the last two pilgrims are the summoner, and the pardoner, and they travel together. The summoner, we get starting on line 625, um, and he has this not exactly lovely face. A summoner was there with us in that place that had a fire-red cherubim's face, a red-faced cherubim. Oh, that sounds nice. Um, For sauceflume pimply he was with eyes narrow and hot he was and lecherous as a sparrow with scaled brows black and piled beard of his visage children were afeared so you've got this red irritated skin and all these pimples and boils and he's so ugly that children are afraid of him right so, not a, uh, it says, there, w- no, there was not quicksilver, Lydegger, nor brimstone, Boris, cirrus, no oil of Tartar, none, no ointment that would cleanse and bite, that him might helpen of his welkin's white. So, he's tried all of these remedies, and nothing can get rid of these, uh, these boils and knobs and uh, pimples on his uh, face. Now, it it tells us that when he gets drunk, when that he well drunken had the wine, then would he speak no word but Latin. A few terms had he, two or three, that he had learned out of some decree, no wonder is, he heard it all the day, and eek you know well how that a jay, like a parrot, uh, can clepen wata, as well as can the pope, but... Whoso could in other things him grope than had he spent in all his philosophy? I questio quid juris, would he cry? So he's when he gets drunk, he kind of yells out these few Latin phrases. He doesn't really know Latin. He's just heard these Latin phrases so much in the court that he can parrot them back. Now, that reminds us what the summoner's job is. The so summoner was is kind of like a... Um, uh, a bounty hunter today. Uh, when, you know, when somebody skips bail, the the bounty hunter goes out and gets them. Well, the summoner worked for the ecclesiastical courts, for the church courts, and he would go out and bring people in before the court to answer for their religious crimes. Uh, there was a separate secular. Uh, judicial system and remember that there was nothing like any modern police force at this time so the, the the church would hire these summoners to go out and and get people for them and we can see that the uh, uh this, this summoner is abusing his office uh, look at line 650 uh he was a gentle harlot and a kind, a better fellow should men not find. As always, the narrator Chaucer is very impressed with everybody. Full privily, a finch eke could he pull, that is, pull a trick. Um, and if he found uh, another anywhere a good fellow, he would teach in him to have none awe, in such case, of the Gerardy's uh, curse, the archdeacon's curse. "'But if a man's soul were in his purse, "'for in his purse he should you punished be. "'Purse is the archdeacon's hell,' said he." So when he finds these people, he says, you know, you know don't worry about all this sin stuff. The, the, Really, it's just about money, so give me money. Um, And this is one of the rare places where the narrator Chaucer disagrees. He says, "'But well, I wot he lied, right indeed,' de- in Of cursing, ought each guilty man him dread, for curse uh, will slay right as a soiling saveth, and also war him of a of a significant. So he's saying, I don't think he's right. I think you know the archdeacon's curse. If you're excommunicated from the church, that's really bad. That's not just that's not just a matter of money. Um, But the summoner, and this was very typical of summoners, as you can imagine, there was a lot of of abuse of that office. They would have people, they would accept bribes to not take them into the ecclesiastical courts. Uh, So we get the indication that he's doing that. Uh, And he's traveling with the pardoner. Look at uh, line... 671 with him the road a gentle partner now a partner is somebody who sells pardons uh, this was again he's not a member of the church but he's doing a, something that is within the auspices of the church uh, pardons were something that you could buy for the remission of your sins so you could you instead of doing the penance, you buy the the pardon, and that excuses things. And there was a lot of abuse about of this. And um, in fact, this is one of the, the the points that would cause the the rift in the church that would cause the Protestant Reformation, is the selling of pardons and indulgences. So he's of Ronceval. Now Ronceval was a famously corrupt institution. It had been. Uh, uh, there have been scandals about them abusing uh, uh, pardons before so that's 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 a red flag right there. We hear that he straight was coming from the court of Rome, so he's come from the you know, the, the center of the church. Um, full loud he sung, "Come hither, love to me So he's singing a love song. This summoner bore to him a stiff burden. Now literally, that means that the, the, the summoner is playing the bass line rhythm for his song, but that bore to him a stiff burden had the same kind of sexual undertones in Chaucer's time as it might today. There's a suggestion that maybe there's a, a very close relationship between this summoner and this pardoner. He um, said so the pardoner had hair as yellow as wax but smooth it hung as does a strike of flax by ounces by strings hung his locks that he had and therewith he his shoulders overspread so he's got this long stringy yellow hair uh, but thin it lay by culpins one by one but hood for jollity would he none so he doesn't wear wear a hood he wants to show off his yellow hair um uh, him thought he rode all of the new jet, the latest fashion, uh, dishevelled save his uh, cape he rode all bare, uh, such glaring eye had as ha, as as an hair, a vernacle had he sewed upon his cape, his wallet before him in his lap, Bretful brimful of pardons came from uh, come from Rome, all hot. So, we start with the physical description, uh, and he sees himself as quite a dandy in the latest fashion, you know, showing off his hair and all of this. He said, A voice he had as small as hath a goat. So it's a high-pitched, squeaky voice. No beard had he, no, never should he have. As smooth it were, as if it were, late-shaved. I trow he were gelding, or mare, so he has no beard. Now everybody, every you know, grown man had a beard. Um, he has no beard, um, and never would. He doesn't grow facial hair, and the the narrator can't quite figure out what to make him. He says, "I trow he were a gelding. That's a castrated horse, or a mare. It's a female horse. So again, there's something." Uh, kind of androgynous about this uh, uh, this pardoner uh, he doesn't seem like a uh, like a normal man uh, he, he's a different in a different category somehow um, says, but of his craft from Brerwick into where no was there such another pardoner for in his mail in his his pack his uh, 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 bag he had a pillow beer a pillowcase, which that he said, our lady was our lady's veil. So now, this is these all these things that he is uh, saying are are sacred relics. Uh, the the veil of of uh, Mary, our lady's veil. Uh, he said he had a gobbit, a piece of the sail that Saint Peter had when that he went upon the sea till Jesu Christ him hint. Um, so he, he's got a a piece of the uh, Mary's veil he's got a piece of, of Peter's sail uh, he had a cross of Latin of, of brass full of stones and in a glass he had a piggy bones but with these relics when that he found a poor pers- parson dwelling upon land upon a day he got him more money than that the parson got in month's tway and thus, with uh, feigned flattery and japes, he made the parson and the people his apes. So part of the way he makes money is he sells these fake relics and convinces people that they're real and they pay exorbitant prices for it. Now, we've just seen the, the, the parson and what a paragon he was. Here it's talking about uh, the, the, the pardoner selling these fake relics to a parson and he gets two months' wages for just one of them. Uh, And again, this is how he he tricks people. He makes the people his apes, his his dopes. He he cons them. Uh, But truly, to tell him at the last, he was in church a noble ecclesiast, That's a noble preacher. Well could he read a lesson and a story, but Alderbest, he sung an offertory. Full, for well he wist, when that song was sung, uh, he, he must per- purchase and well afile his tongue to win silver, as he full well could. Therefore he sung the merrily and loud. So the pardoners partner, were allowed to speak in church, you know, just to announce that they had these pardons and he would take advantage of this and apparently he was a great preacher and a great singer and so that's how he would get people to buy his pardons and buy his relics Um, now the the summoner and the pardoner um, are not officially part of the church they're kind of parasitic on the church Uh, they're either the ecclesiastical courts or the system of pardons, uh, they're making money off of the, the uh, doctrines of the church. Uh, and uh, both of them, they're, they're probably the two most unsavory characters in the entire prologue. So that's the 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 list of the pilgrims that are going on this pilgrimage. Uh, now, the, the Canterbury Tales is incomplete. Chaucer didn't live to finish all the tales that he had planned, um, but we have you know, we have quite a lot of them, and we'll be reading three of the, the, the three of the tales from the the Miller, the Wife, and the Pardoner. Uh, and these portraits will help us kind of contextualize them and think about how the tales reflect the people. That was a real innovation of, of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. There had been a kind of anthologies of stories. Uh, Boccaccio had written The Decameron, which was uh, 10 people over 10 days. Uh, each of them told one story a day. So you've got 100 stories. Uh, but the, the stories really don't necess- are almost interchangeable. They don't really reflect the the personality or the background of the people telling them. But Chaucers do. Uh, he's, he's making sure that the, the tale is fitted in some way to the person telling it. Now after he's, he's told us all about these people, run through them, uh, we get back to the the, the the tabard where they're waiting to go on from London to Canterbury. And the narrator makes a little apology, around line 727. He says, "...but first I pray you of your courtesy that ye narrate it not my villainly, though that I plainly speak in this matter, to tell you their words and their cheer, their behavior, not though I spoke their words properly." For this you know also well as I whoso shall tell a tale after a man, he must rehearse as nigh as e'er he can, eat every word if it be in his charge, all speaking he never so rude rulish or large, or else he might tell his tale untrue or feign thing or find words new, so what he's saying is look you know i'm going I'm going to tell you all about what they said, I've told you all about the things they said about themselves and what they did and I'm going to tell you these tales but hey, it's not my fault if, if you know, something offends you here or, you know, they did something wrong. I'm just, it's my job just to report exactly what they said uh, so don't blame me. And of course that's an irony because Chaucer is the one who's inventing all of the stories, but Chaucer, the narrator wants to be uh, absolved from any, any guilt from that. And um, and now the, the final character that we meet in the general prologue is the the host of the tabard. He's the host of the inn, and we get him around line uh, seven fifty five. Uh, a large man he was, with eyes steep, prominent. Uh, a fair uh, ber- uh, burger was there none in cheap, bold of his speech, and wise and well ye taught, and of manhood him lacked right or not uh, so this is a you know a big man a, a, a manly man a, a merry man uh he kind of gets things going and you know keep he, he's a good host he's, he keeps the spirits up keeps them going uh and he has a a plan something that he wants to do he tells them around line 790 Lordings Quoth he, Now hearken for the best, but take it, take it not, I pray you, in dis- in disdain. This is the point to speak in short and plain, that each of you, to short our way, our, uh, short uh, with our way, in that voyage shall tell in tales t'way. So you know, to pass the time as we're traveling to Canterbury, he wants to go with them. Uh, everybody will tell two stories. To Canterburyward, I mean it so, and homeward he shall tell unto other two, uh, of adventure and will ome have have befall, and which of you that beareth him best of all, that is to say, that telleth in this case tales of best symptoms and of most solace, shall have a supper at our alder cost here in this place, sitting by this post, when that we come again from Canterbury. So this is the, the 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 game that he's setting up uh, everybody's going to tell stories he's got it like they each be telling four stories um uh, Chaucer never got anywhere near to writing all that um and the winner notice he says line eight hundred uh, is the one that tells tales of best sentence and most solace. now sentence is the the meaning. The, the moral message of the story and solas is solas uh, delight so the, the tale has to both instruct and to delight and we'll be thinking as we read the the, the selection of tales from uh, Chaucer how these different tales measure up in those ways uh, do those things always go together are they in conflict um Maybe you could have something that was had a very instructive but was really boring. What if you got a tale that was really exciting and entertaining but wasn't you know enriching you or teaching you any important lesson? Um, Chaucer sets up from the beginning that those are the terms in which he wants us to evaluate these stories to think about, how we would evaluate them. And also, since it's set up as a contest, implicitly he's asking us to judge, too. Who would we give the prize to? Which story do we think is best and why? Uh, and that's an issue that will come up repeatedly uh, in, in the Canterbury Tales. Um, so he tells them, you know, so I will, will myself goodly with you ride, right at mine own cost and be your guide. So they're all agreeable to that. They'll go with the host and he'll ride with them to Canterbury and he'll be the judge of the the tales. Now, they have to decide who's going to go first. This is line uh, 831. You watch your forward and it, you uh, record if even song or mor- morrow song accord, let see now, it says if you've agreed, you're still agreed today to what you agreed to last night, let see now, who shall tell the first tale and ever mought i drink in wine or ale why so be rebel to mine judgment shall play for all that by the way is spent now draw us cut ere that we fur- further twin he which hath the shortest shall begin Sire Knight, quoth he, my master and my lord Now draweth cut, for that is mine accord Come, Cometh near, quoth he, my lady prioress And ye, Sire Clark, let be your shamefastness Now studieth not, lay hand to every man So he calls them up one by one uh, Has them each draw a, a, a straw And it, it turns out Were it by adventure, or sort, or cast In sooth, the sooth is this the cut fell to the knight. All right? Now, that means whether it was by luck or fate or chance, the knight got it. Now, that's very interesting. It's it's introducing a theme of fate and luck and chance, which is a theme that comes up quite a lot in in the Canterbury Tales. It also uh, seems very providential. I mean, the knight should go first. He's the one who went first in the uh, uh, descriptions in the general prologue he's the highest ranking member of society here um, so it, it's a lucky accident or is it just an accident is it providence uh, there's even uh, some critics have even suggested that is the, this trying to imply that the host has rigged this to make sure that the night goes first uh, that's possible too it raises those questions in your mind uh, and makes you think about w- why is the knight suitable to go first um, and how, how lucky it was that that happened. And the f- so the first tale is The Knight's Tale. Now, we're not going to be reading The Knight's Tale, even though it's, it's a good one. It's a very long one. Uh, it's a, a story that takes place in ancient Athens, it's about two best friends who are defeated in battle and put in prison. And out of their prison windows, they see and fall in love with the same girl at the same moment. And this causes a, a feud between them, and they begin, they fight each other. And it, it eventually ends with uh, a great battle between the two of them for the lady. And one of them wins the battle, but right after he does, he is... Uh, he's. Killed. He's, his horse falls on him and kills him, and so the other one uh, gets to marry the lady. Um, it's uh, it's a love triangle. It's about the these aristocratic people. It's set in uh, ancient times. It's very high serious uh, storytelling. There's a lot of philosophical, uh, philosophical ideas about fate and free will and chance and how how that is determined in human life and all of that uh, is very appropriate for the night. And the Miller's Tale, as you'll see, is just the complete opposite of all that. It's parallel in some ways. It is also a kind of a love triangle. But... It's not ancient. It's a contemporary story. It's not aristocrats. It's everyday folk. Um, It's not high-minded and serious. It is bawdy and dirty and uh, humorous. And so that's going to be the story that comes next. And it's interesting, if you think about it, that Chaucer would juxtapose. To start off the the Canterbury Tales, he juxtaposes this very high-minded, serious story. Story with this very light-hearted, a uh, very bawdy tale. Uh, the The genre of the Miller's Tale is a fablio. Now, fabliau was just this. It was a it was a story uh, about uh, common everyday people. Usually, there was some trickery going on, and uh, usually sexual uh, adventures as well. And we'll see all of that happens in the in the Miller's Tale. I want you to be thinking about the the appropriateness of the tale for the Miller. First of all, why is it the Miller tells his tale next? Uh, why doesn't some more uh, higher ranking person go? The the prologue to the Miller's tale will explain all that. And for the tale itself, I want you to think about how the the characters are developed here. What what we learn about the characters. Who are we rooting for, if anybody? And think about how the plot is set up. It, it all really kind of comes down to this very um, sudden conclusion. And think about how carefully it's all set up. I mean, in a way, it's a, it's a, a very well-constructed story, but for uh, not for any particularly high purpose. And think, as you should, for all of these stories about the... How you would judge the tale. Again, if, this, if we're looking for the tales of most sentence and best solace, where does the Miller's Tale fit in that? Is, what, what is its sentence? What is its solace? Uh, how does it instruct? How does it delight? Uh, think about that. In addition, I'd like you to look at the um, handouts for the class on the webpage, and you'll see that there's a handout for keywords in the Miller's Tale. Now, there are three words that appear quite frequently in the story. Uh, they're Middle English words that we don't really have in our language anymore. Uh, one is hindi. The other one is selly, That's the ancestor of our, our ancestor of our word, silly. But it's different, very different in meaning, selly. And the third one is private, which is obviously related to private um, but look at the uh, handout that I have. Look at the definitions of those words and keep them in mind as you're reading. Notice when those words appear, who, which characters the words are linked with, and what those words reveal about those characters and about the, the world of the story and how it's put together. So we'll be thinking about all of that for next time when we talk about the Miller's Tale. Uh, as always, if you have questions about, about uh, the Canterbury Tales or anything else, uh, email me at drmarkwomack at gmail.com. Thank you again for your attention. I will talk to you next time.